I'd like for us to begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the awesome privilege which is ours to know and to love Jesus Christ and to serve him in our lives. I cannot thank you enough for this magnificent church, for all it is coming to mean to so many, for the great work that's being done here, for the leadership that exists here. And I pray that you will endow them with your powerful Holy Spirit, that their future may be bright beyond imagining. In Jesus' name, amen. Central Church is a huge part of my life and my heart. It wasn't here all that long. Uh, it wound up being right at two years. But that two-year period was a transforming time. Now, I will have to tell you that when we first arrived here, uh, there were 14 people. There was a, a janitorial staff of six magnificent African-American guys from the South who spoke my language and I spoke theirs and we loved each other. But that was it. And the first time we walked around here, we, we got back uh, to the hotel room and Trisha said, are you sure you know what you're doing? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I said to her then, and I still say this, in all of, I've been in the ministry for 50 years, and in all of those years, I never actually started a church. And that was a missing link in my whole journey with Christ in the ministry. And so I look back at this, and I basically say, I got to start a church in a Gothic cathedral. <laughs> Nobody else gets to do that. Um, because it really was melted down to a very small core group. The saving grace was that core group were committed to Christ and committed to seeing this church live. The first document that I ever got from the presbytery was a long document that basically charted the death of Central Church. And they were hopeful and they worked hard to see that that might occur. God had another idea. And you now are witnessing how that is unfolding. So this place means the world to me. And I'm honored to spend these moments with you. Now, what I want to do is uh, basically everything uh, that happened in Orlando happened as a basis, on the basis of a biblical foundation. And I want to point to some of the biblical uh, passages or verses that became the watchword for us in Orlando. And I want to begin uh, with a parable from Matthew 13, <clears throat> beginning at 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, 
Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go out and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, that's the parable itself. A little later, we read, Then he left the crowd and went into the house. The disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. Key line. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. The enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds like great fun. But the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the key phrase that captivated this band of folks in Orlando, Florida in 1982 was the field is the world. And we got to thinking about the fact that here's Jesus, a backwater preacher, not terribly well known, with a band of disciples who were anything but prize winners and he tells them that the field is the world how in the world did they manage to catch a vision that would allow them ultimately to bring down the Roman Empire and to change the world and you and I are living in that changed world a small group of people deeply committed to Christ, drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit and using all of the creativity and energy of which they are capable can, in fact, change the world. In 1982 in Orlando, nobody much believed that. But we came to believe it. And then as we began to unfold what that was going to mean, perhaps, um, we began to realize that we needed to have a strategy. We couldn't just allow things just to kind of wander from one day to the next. We needed to have some kind of encompassing strategy. And it was then that I stumbled on what became for me and for us that strategy. It's the strategy of Paul. 
Now, I want you to understand, I'd spent my life studying the missionary journeys of Paul, but I missed the key of the whole thing. Paul wandered eight to 10,000 miles over the Middle Eastern world, wandered through all kinds of small towns and rural areas, and established churches in any number of places. But he only spent time in the city. I missed that. He spent two to three years in Ephesus, another two to three years in Corinth, a significant period of time in Thessalonica. All of the key cities, he devoted himself, his time, his energy, and his effort. Why? Because, I believe, Paul came to realize that if he could plant the gospel firmly in the city, that the traffic of people and commerce and trade and everything else, the traffic would carry the seeds of the gospel out to the surrounding area. And then I stumbled across a verse I'd never noticed this before. Who knows how many times I'd read it. After spending, it says, two years plus, when you add up all the other times that are mentioned in Acts, it was actually three years in Ephesus, one of the great key cities of the ancient world. This is what it says. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Gentiles who lived in the province of Asia, that's all of Asia Minor, all of the Jews and Gentiles who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, it doesn't say they all listened. It doesn't say they all responded. It doesn't say they all were saved. But they heard the word. Why? Because he devoted himself to Ephesus and then... The gospel spread. That became a kind of a watchword for us in Orlando. And then we discovered, well, let me, let me just say this. There came a point when, when I first started in Orlando, uh, it actually was to somewhat, it was like this. There, was, there were about 1,200 people on the roll. There were only really about seven or 800 that you could count as being even reasonably active members. There was a staff there, and the first day that I started, one member of the staff came in and said, during the vacancy I've been talking around, I'm accepting a call, I'm leaving. Shortly thereafter, another staff member said, I'm in administration here, I don't want to be in administration anymore, I'm accepting a call elsewhere. And then, this was kind of the kicker for me, the senior associate left a note on my desk one morning, there, shortly thereafter, when I came in, and the note said, I am demanding that I preach 50% of the time. I said to the session, what do we do about this? And they said, we take care of it right now. He's gone. And he was. Um, so suddenly, I've got a church in the middle of downtown. 
the building is in miserable shape, and there aren't that many really active people, and I'm all by myself. I was being prepared for Central. <laughs> well, at that point in time, we, we all recognize, the elders and I recognize, we, this is either going to be catastrophic or it's a great opportunity. So we began to pray, and we began to study the Bible, and we began to try to figure out what God wanted. In the meantime... One of the members of the church had a nice piece of property outside of downtown Orlando. And he said, I will give you the property if you move the church and build it out there. Well, there were serious temptations. Doing the work of God in the city is not easy. And that was apparent. If we stayed there, there was a chance we were going to die. First Baptist Church across the street had already moved out of downtown. First Methodist Church across another street uh, had been through a series of pastors. They were not doing very well at all. The Lutheran Church downtown had given up altogether, built a high-rise retirement home, and put a chapel on top of it and closed the church. All around us, churches were either changing, moving out, or dying. It was then that we recognized we need to make a commitment. Are we going to go out or are we going to stay? That launched us into an extensive period of time with the leaders of the congregation. Um, and one of the things that we stumbled on was 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and part of 6. Those verses became our watchword. And from that point on, we studied that passage of Scripture at least once every year just to remind us that our task was not easy, it was going to be tough, but that nevertheless, we believed it would fall under the direction of God. So what we wound up doing was using that passage of scripture we then went to the congregation and we said we want you to understand we are recommending that we stay downtown and we used as our watchword the words of Paul right at the 11th verse of chapter 6 of 2nd Corinthians Paul says Corinthians, our mouth is open to you and our heart is wide. Those words became the watchword. We were going to have open mouths. We were going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ unashamedly, unreservedly, without any apology, whatever, no matter what. And our hearts were wide. We were going to attempt to embrace the city around us. At that point in time, the congregational meeting, uh, I shall not forget this, um, th there was an older man in the congregation named Herb Hack. He was from Germany, and he had a broken English accent that was really difficult to understand. But Herb Hack 
through the years, had earned the respect of the people in that congregation. And Herb Hack stood up in the congregation, and he said, if we make the decision to move, I want you to understand the piece of property is right adjacent to my store. It will be a great blessing to me personally. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my. (laughs) And then Herb Hack said, people having strained to hear him, they're leaning up. I could see him leaning up in the pew. He said, our call is to stay right here and to do whatever it takes, no matter what it costs. I don't think anybody had any idea what it was going to cost, but, oh, It did cost. But from that moment on, we never looked back. So the whole biblical foundation for the ministry there began at that point. 1982 was a desperately difficult time. And there were other difficult times that followed. And then in the year... 2000, there was a huge article in the Orlando paper with the headline, Miracle on Church Street. And it was an account of what had happened during those 20 years. What a difference the church had made. So when you, when you take seriously your call and when you understand that the field is the world, that's what we're about. And when you understand that if you plant the gospel deeply and seriously in the city, it's going to spread. And when you adopt as a principle, we're going to have open mouths and wide hearts. Then God blesses that. Now, that's the the kind of biblical foundation I guess I would, let me just, because I just suddenly thought of this. Steve Hainer was, he's dead now. He died of cancer just a couple of years ago. Was the head of InterVarsity, that magnificent ministry. Um, Steve Hainer came and spent a week at First Presbyterian Orlando. And at the end of that time, he sat down with our leaders and he said, I've been trying to figure out how to capture what's happening here in a single sentence. And I think I've found it. He said, this place is totally out of control and knee-deep in miracles. And it is. It was totally out of control. There are 165, by that time, different ministries flowing out of the life of First Presbyterian Orlando. And I wasn't in control of them. Some of them I wasn't even aware of. But the Holy Spirit was in control. And that's all that mattered. And so it was on that kind of energy that the ministry was built. Now, what I have on your sheet are the kind of, the you know, I'm a preacher, come on. They're all going to start with I. And, and they're going to be cute and... And, and they, they'll be easy to remember, hopefully. But these are the elements that came together in a variety of ways to make it possible for God to use what happened there. Now, 
what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of start in, work through. You can stop me anytime. You can put a hand up. You can say, wait a minute, how did that happen? What, what was the result of that? Anything like that is, this is, this is a free-for-all. But I'm going to give you, as best as I can, what occurred there and why. The first is identity. Every person has to have an identity, and it's more than just a name. My name is Howard Eddington, but my identity is bigger than my name. Name's important, yes, but, but there is also the role that I play as husband or father or a pastor or whatever. All of those elements come in. There are a variety of other factors that make me who I am. Exactly the same is true of a church. Every church has a personality all its own. Every church is unique. It's unique because of its history. It's unique because of the people who are part of it. It's unique because of its location. It's unique because of its sense of mission. All of those things work together to create the identity of a congregation. Now, you know, in years gone by, the society around us was really wonderful about helping to give the church a sense of identity. The society basically kind of supported the things that the church was about. And it was relatively easy to do the ministry in that kind of a situation and setting. No longer. You and I are living in a secular society. It is even, in many respects, a pagan society. It is not unlike the society in which the early church took root. And the tasks and challenges and obstacles that they faced then, we are having to face now. We got a different kind of a set of those things, but they're still the same realities. There's a sense in which the church's situation in the surrounding culture is no different now than it was when the church began, at least in this country. So, a sense of identity becomes incredibly important. Who are we at the corner of Park and 64th? Now, I will tell you that what there were two things that occurred. One was we adopted a motto for the church. You know, Nike. When you say Nike, what is the little motto that Nike always affixes? Just do it. Three little words. A church, I believe, needs to have three or four little word motto. Because, I'll explain in a minute how that affects what happens. Because we made the decision to stay where we were, if you take a map of Orlando and put a pen right in the center of the city of Orlando, that's First Presbyterian Church. And so we adopted the motto, the heart of the city. We knew we were the geographical heart of the city, but we were interested in being Christ's heart for the city. That became our identity. It appeared on everything, on the bulletin boards, on the bulletin, on the stationery. It was used incessantly in the life of the church. People actually came to the point where they didn't say, 
First Presbyterian, they said, I belong to the heart of the city church. The motto became so incorporated into the city around us. I'll give you one example of how pervasive it ultimately became. If you were to get on the city bus in Orlando and ride it in the middle of downtown, as the bus pulls up to the corner of Church Street and Magnolia, the little computer-generated voice comes on and says, you have arrived at First Presbyterian, the heart of this city. On the public buses, the reason for that is it was easy to remember. And all of our people found it easy to remember. And that became, first of all, our name, but also our identity. Because it gave us our sense of mission. Our mission was to plant the gospel in the center of that city. And then to open our hearts up to encompass not just the city, but far beyond there. And so the heart of the city is what gave us that sense of identity. We also had a mission statement or a vision statement. We are called by God to create, under the power of Jesus Christ, a place in the center of the city where people are confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and learn to live their lives for Christ in the world. There's nothing profound about that. It's very simple. It doesn't need to be profound. What it needs to be is something to capture an understanding of what our mission is. Every Sunday morning on the bottom of the bulletin, the mission statement was there. Our congregation learned it, memorized it. The kids memorized it. It was easy for kids to memorize. And so that whole thing became a part of our understanding of who we were and what we were about for Christ in the world. Now, once you establish your identity, there's some elements that become critical in maintaining that identity. Number one, of course, is is vision. Um, Our vision was, as I said, not just to plant the gospel in the center of the city, but then to spread the good news of Christ to the world around us and, for that matter, to the world far away and with wide hearts to embrace everybody who came to us. It didn't matter who they were or what they were or what their circumstances were. And i got to tell you, when it, over the years... I would stand in the pulpit of First Presbyterian Orlando, look out at the congregation, and I would be staggered to realize that the whole demographic pie of humanity was there. I remember one Sunday, sitting right beside one another on the pew, the chairman of the state Democratic Party and the chairman of the state Republican Party. I remember looking out from the pulpit and seeing the chairman of the board of the SunTrust Banks. And sitting right next to him was Dr. John. Now, I've got to explain to you who Dr. John is. Dr. John had long hair, and he had a beard on half of his face, 
and the other half was clean shaven. Well, Dr. John came to see me one day, and I said, okay, first of all, you're going to have to explain to me why you look like this. And he said, that's who I am. I'm half wild, and I'm half tame. (laughs) Well... Let me tell you, you don't forget that, do you? Um, but Dr. John became a key guy in our congregation. Turns out, once upon a time, the reason he's Dr. John, once upon a time he had a Ph.D. And he was a professor. And he lost it. And he got caught up in drugs and a variety of other things. And his life came apart and his family left him. And he was living on the streets in Orlando. And he's sitting in the pew next to the chairman of the board of SunTrust Banks. When you deal with the whole range of the human family, that's the uniqueness of a city church. And this is a city church. And that's what I want you all to be. Whenever I drove onto the block at First Presbyterian every morning, I knew before I left there, at the end of the day, whenever that came, I would have to tackle at least one situation, event, or circumstance for which I was totally unprepared. Every day, I had to deal with things that I never learned in seminary. The dynamic nature of a city church is exciting. It's thrilling. And when you... When I step into the doors here, I feel the energy. And when I come to worship here, it's, I, I think I'm in heaven. The elements of a city church are wonderful, dynamic, exciting. And if you establish your identity and understand, okay, that's who we are, regardless, doesn't matter what it costs, doesn't matter the challenges that we have, doesn't matter if you have to have scaffolding all over the place outside, All that matters is, this is who we are, and this is our call. This is what we're going to be about. Establishing an identity requires a vision. It also requires viability. Viability means you have to demonstrate that this is a viable ministry. It's it's effective. It's going to last. Um, It also means... And I recognize that's where you all are right now. It also means taking care of your physical space. Um, We recognized as the church began to grow that we were totally hamstrung where we were in downtown. We were on a city block, but also on that city block was a gas station, a rock lot that a bank used for a parking lot, and a funeral home. And we came to realize that we would never be able to do what we needed to do unless we secured that block, whatever it took. And it was turned out to be awful. The first thing that we did was to buy the gas station. And that meant we had to tear the gas station down. And then they had to dig down because of environmental stuff way, way, way down in the earth and let it sit for months. And do all kinds of other things there. 
the gas station at that point in time was $350,000. That was a lot of money to us at that point in time, and we didn't have it. And so I recognized that we were going to have to borrow the money. So one day, not long thereafter, I'm in my office, and a lady walks in whom I did not know. I hadn't been there all that long, and she came in. She looked like, well, her clothes were mismatched. They were ragged. She was carrying a, one of those crushed velvet purses from way, way back. Her hair was a stitch. She walked in, and she said, Preacher, sit down. So I said, Okay. I want to talk to you. And she said, we haven't met. I come here every Sunday. And I love to hear you preach. But I sit in the back. Because I've got some problems. We haven't met. But I want to talk to you today. Because I hate interest. (laughs) What? I said, I hate interest. And I'm thinking, where is this going? She says, I know that you're getting ready to borrow money for this church, and I hate interest. So I'm going to write you a check to help so that we don't have interest. I said, well, okay. She looked like she just wandered in off the streets, and she gets out a checkbook. She writes out a check, hands it to me, $350,000. I said, Miss Stewart, I don't even know what to say here. And she said, I'll tell you what to say. I have this on one condition. I'm giving you this on one condition. So then I thought, oh, my, where are we going now? And she said, the reason I have to sit in the back is I don't walk so well. And I really love to hear you preach. And I would like to have a parking spot somewhere close to the sanctuary. Who? 24 hours later, she had a parking spot. Well, the point is, when, when you dive in, determined to make the ministry viable, no matter what it costs, somehow God's going to find a way to make it happen. And Loretta Stewart was just an example of that. So viability of the ministry is incredibly important. People who come here have to know this is a serious enterprise of the kingdom. And whatever we do here is going to be done with all of that in mind. And it's going to be done at a level of excellence that demonstrates that the ministry is viable. The third thing is visibility. It is very important for a city church to be visible. That's, you know, the folks who were here at the beginning know that I, one of my goals was to see the scaffolding gone. Well, I've, I've had a number of failures in my life, and, and, and that was one more because I wanted this magnificent place to show. Um, visibility is not just the physical appearance. It's doing things in such a way that they make a splash. In... Orlando, one of the things that we did was we started a ministry on television. 
We knew that that was expensive, but the church said, all right, we've got to somehow get the word out that we're here and what we're doing. So we videotaped the worship service, edited it down to 30 minutes, and it played the following week on one of the channels in town. That was the beginning. Then we moved to a whole other series of things that ultimately proved even more effective. I would uh, tape little vignettes, parables. I would take a real-life situation. I remember one of them was I, was I was standing in the neonatal unit at the local hospital, had a baby in my arms, and I talked about this life and what's going to happen to this life and how is this young child ultimately going to be shaped to become a truly worthwhile citizen in the kingdom. They were little vignettes, 30 seconds, not terribly expensive to do and not terribly expensive to buy on television. And they played at all hours of the day and night. There was just the parable and the message, the setting, no attempt to raise money, no attempt to advertise the church. The only thing that happened was at the very end of the spot, there would be a crawler across the bottom of the screen that said, First Presbyterian Church, the heart of the city. That's all it said. Ultimately, those things became so popular that the television writer for the Orlando Sentinel did a feature story on the effectiveness of those spots. At that point in time, we were receiving four to 500 new members every year. And his research indicated that 25 to 30 percent of those came because of the television spots. The church had become visible. Whatever it takes, radio, radio is relatively inexpensive to do little short pieces, little spot kind of things there. Um, streaming, my successor in Orlando, um, is, is emphasizing streaming so that now virtually everything that happens in that church is streamed on the Internet so that people all over are being captured by what's still happening in the heart of the city. Visibility is incredibly important. Now, parenthesis. You all have the Cornell Fund. I don't know where that stands now. All I know is that when I was here, it was meant and designated for underprivileged, disadvantaged children. Well, is that... And, and so what, I would just simply plant the seed. Let me just say honestly, I can't find any reason for not using that money to do something splashy and big so that it catches the attention of the city around you. Why hold on to it? You see, if you're doing these things, the church is going to grow. And the next thing you know, you're going to have other folks who step up, like the Cornells once upon a time did, who start saying, well, we want to do this. I'll come back to that a little bit later on. This is incredibly important to highlight. Don't just nickel and dime things. Nobody cares about that. Nobody sees that. I'm talking about being obnoxious enough to have this church stand out so that nobody misunderstands who you are and what you're all about. 
I'm asking you to find ways. I just use the Cornell as an example. Find ways to exalt Central Church in the minds and the hearts of the city around you. Do whatever it takes to highlight, exalt Christ, yes, Central Church together. And I encourage that. All right. That's identity. If there are things you want to ask about that or comment about that, yes, Wilma. How much Let me come to that a little later. The one thing I would assure you of that we had, it was not easy. Um, Warren Wearsby is, is one of my friends, a great uh, Christian leader. Warren Liz, Wearsby speaks of what he calls Christian nomads. Those are people in the church who, when the church is engaged in really doing the work of Christ, the first thing they do is they say no. The second thing they do is they get mad. And the third thing they do is they leave. Well, unfortunately, in Orlando, some of those people didn't leave. We did have some who left, and, uh, and, and that was okay. They needed to be somewhere where they could be spiritually fed, whatever it is that they required. But there were a lot of people, yes, and particularly early on, um, who said no, and then who got mad. And they got mad at me. They got mad at the session. Um, and, and that was not easy to deal with. The saving grace, and I, I will come back to this a little later, the saving grace was what the leadership and the pastor did ultimately made all the difference in the world. I called it then, I still call it the covenant concept. I'll come back to that a little later. Yes, Steve. I was thinking about the life of Jesus, and there were times when he was very visible, and there were times when he told someone he had this healed. Don't tell anyone. Yep. So there seems like there's also an element of wisdom. Wouldn't argue that, yeah. The difference for me would come at the point that, that this was never, nothing we ever did in terms of visibility was designed to say, look at us. It was designed to say, look at Christ. Or look at what... Yeah. That the same, when you, all, when you do one, the other follows. And we didn't, you know, we, yeah, we wound up getting a lot of publicity and everything else in time. Remember, I was there 21 years, and it took a lot of years before that kind of thing began to happen. Um, so, it, and there were times where, where we had to sit down and say, okay, is this just calling too much attention to us and to what we're doing here? Or is this genuinely being in something that will engage the world around us? For the sake of Christ, right. that that was the element. But it's a good it's a good distinction. Thank you. Yeah. That's right. Right. And and nothing, and here here again, nothing we ever did. For example, on television, I 
that my integrity was never at issue. I never received a dime for anything. The church's integrity was never at issue. It was all wide open. The cost and everything involved, wide open. And the, the integrity of the outreach was unmistakable. The message was what mattered, not the messenger. Any others? I think there was a... Yes, Jamie. Yeah, let, let me hold some more of that off for where we're headed, okay? If I don't catch it, you put your hand up again and remind me. Because it, it really, um, it got to the point where, where the, the whole ministry of the church was far bigger than any individual and far bigger even uh, than the elders, but that was a really wonderful thing. Why? Because the lay people sitting on the pews said, man, th- these folks can't handle all this. We got to step in here. So the lay involvement ultimately at First Presbyterian became enormous. And I will uh, point to some of that a little bit later. All right, Identity. I don't know what your motto needs to be, but, uh, man, look at where you are. Look at who you are. Look at the opportunity you have. And all I can say is cut it loose. Sick them. Okay. The next category, integrity. The personal integrity not only of the pastor and pastors but the entire leadership became absolutely essential for us we recognize that in our time the church is severely damaged by those I would call Christian charlatans who are engaged in things in the work of of the Lord that must break the Lord's heart. And we knew that the more visible we became, the more attention we would attract. And if we did not have a standard of integrity at the church, that sooner or later that was going to bite us. And so we worked incredibly hard at that. Now, here's where I want to I take that. Um, We came to the point of believing that people matter more than programs and that faith matters more than function. I'm not saying program and function aren't valuable. They are. But, and this is, this is the point where I would speak really, try to speak clearly to you in leadership. Um, we, we realized that as the church began to grow, we were going to have to expand the staff. We were going to have to expand the the leadership core. And we recognized that we still had to maintain a very, very high standard. 
So we made a decision, and I will, I will tell you that this decision was actually influenced by Lou Holtz. You know Lou Holtz, the football coach? Lou Holtz said when he was coaching, I never go out and recruit athletes to fill a position. I recruit the best athletes I can find and build the team around them. Well, light went on for me. So we stopped developing job descriptions to go out and find somebody to fill that job description. Instead, we went out to find the best, strongest people. The three qualities were depth of Christian commitment, sterling nature of character, and unquestionable competence. In that order, competence is last. We wanted the best, most capable people we could find. Bring them to the church and say, we are going together to determine what your individual gifts and abilities are, and then we will structure a function that allows you to take advantage of those gifts and abilities. Now, I, I will quickly tell you, we did have titles because you had to have a name on a door and you had to have a title under there so that when people came to the church, they could find whoever it was they were looking for. The titles were meaningless. Every person on the staff of First Presbyterian was engaged in the full range of the church's ministry all the time. But every person on the staff went deep. That was the term we used. Go deep. Go deep in the area of your gifts, God-given, and abilities. So then, let me give you an example. Ted Pierce on our staff had an incredible gift for children. So, Ted Pierce was not only going deep for children and building ministry for children, but when it came to evangelism, he was the evangelist to children and their families. When it came to pastoral care, when there were needs in children's lives or families, Ted Pierce would be the pastor in charge. So everybody was engaged in the full ministry of the church. My particular go deep was preaching and the vision casting. But when Bill Duckworth, who was our go deep guy in pastoral care, when there was somebody that he knew needed the gifts and abilities that I possess in their situation, I was under his orders. He would send me to see them and give me the task for which was going to be mine with the obligation to report back. So I worked for him at that point. Now, the goal in all of this was so that everybody was invested fully in the whole ministry of the church. One of the terrible things that happens in so many churches is that you build kingdoms and silos and people follow this person on the staff or that person on the staff, or they put more emphasis on this program or that. We didn't want any of that. Now, what that led to, obviously, was a measure of total chaos because nobody, it appeared, was in charge. 
So that's what we did. We developed for the staff and for the elders and the other leaders the covenant concept. We developed a covenant with each other. We did it collectively. We came together. We talked about what elements ought to be in this covenant. We, we did the verbiage. We got it out. Three primary categories. Accountability, loyalty, and flexibility. Accountability. Um, we are going to be accountable to each other. If there are things that we need to deal with, we're going to deal with them together. If there are things that we're not doing right, we need to acknowledge that with one another. And we need to find a way to overcome that. Here's the key thing. Whenever we would get a whole new class of elders or whenever we would get a new staff person, we redid the whole covenant so that the new people were engaged at the same level. And it changed every time. Every time. The, the basic elements, the structure stayed the same. But the elements within it and the verbiage within it changed as people shared that. There comes my beautiful bride. Okay. Um, the covenant concept did a, a couple of things. Number one, it was the glue that held us together. And, and all the elders and the staff all knew what was in the covenant. Accountability, loyalty, it wasn't blind loyalty, but it was loyalty to each other so that the forces around us could not triangulate us. The forces around us could not pull us apart. The forces around us could not determine what was going to happen. We did that together. And once that was done, then our loyalty was to each other to see that it happens. The third thing was flexibility. One phrase you never heard at First Presbyterian Church was this. That's not in my job description. They didn't have a job description. You couldn't say that. Your call was to the whole ministry of the church. In the area of your gifts, you go deep, but you're engaged in every aspect of it. So the leadership and the pastors were engaged in a covenant relationship that was formulated, put together, forged by all together, and then lived out under the direction of God in the lives of all of those who were involved. I would strongly encourage you to wrestle with what it means to be in a covenantal relationship with each other and, and particularly with the pastor and the pastors we got now, which is a wonderful thing indeed. Another thing that was incredibly important was the freedom to fail. The leadership regularly declared to the congregation, we're going to fail. We're going to fail a lot. I've got more failures piled up than I could begin to catalog. And we trumpeted the idea, and particularly with staff people, try anything. doesn't matter. If it fails, so what? We move on to something else. 
They were never hamstrung by thinking, golly, if this doesn't go well, I'm, I'm not going to be in good shape here. It was never on their plate. And they knew it. And the leaders of the congregation kept saying to them, don't worry about that. You're not going to be judged on whether or not you try something and it fails. That's not who we are. So the freedom to fail was always incredibly important. Now, one other kind of postscript here. The Presbyterian system is really ingenious. The pastors are not members of the church. The pastors are members of the presbytery. They are answerable to the presbytery. They are not quote-unquote answerable to the local congregation. And the local congregation is able to do only two things. Elect their officers and call their pastors. Electing the officers is the critical element there. Because if you've got the right folks in leadership, things are going to happen that happen really in an extraordinary way. But the pastor is designated as the head of staff and the chief of the governing structure. But the pastor's ultimate obligation is to the presbytery. That is designed to keep pastors from living with this I think, well, if, if I don't do this right, the congregation or the leadership's going to stand up and vote to get rid of me. That's an insecure creation of feeling. And that can be avoided, needs to be avoided, and the Presbyterian system does avoid it. So my job at First Presbyterian was to set the vision and to see to it that all of the pieces that were out there worked as, as well as possible and to see to it that everybody in staff and leadership had what they needed in order to accomplish what God was calling us as a congregation to do. And I had the, the, the wonderful freeing privilege of knowing that whatever I offered under the Presbyterian system, the leadership had an obligation to hear, to wrestle with, and to if there are adjustments that need to be made, fine. If approvals need to be made, fine. But it gave the pastor the freedom to be the kind of le spiritual leader that God requires. So utilize the Presbyterian structure, but do it with the covenant concept. Because that's where everybody comes together. And it's there where the real power of the church's ministry begins to take off. In that sense, we're all in this together. And we win together or we fail together, but we're together. And nothing is going to change that. That also means, and I'll have to say this, when, the, you know, when you got, I wound up in Orlando with 10 associate pastors and a staff of 180. And when you got that many people, you remember what I said, it took a lot of years to get there. When you got that many people, well, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, I'm there, but there's also trouble there. Uh, and, and so uh, 
So we had that. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a staff member who, who got involved in a moral situation, and the covenant locked in, confronted him, worked through it, and said, your minister here is no longer valid. And he had to leave. Um, there were others like that. Now, where I did make a mistake, if I could do that again, I would. My successor's actually done a better job of this. When, when somebody has a problem on the staff and winds up uh, being forced to leave or whatever, he stands up in the pulpit and tells everybody exactly what happened. It's, it's made for some interesting Sundays on occasion there. Um, we, I never did that. I, I just said, you know, this person is leaving and that was it. But th- there was always more hurt than needed to be there. Um, if people in the congregation had understood what actually occurred, they, they wouldn't have been so hurt, perhaps, by the circumstances that took place. So, yeah, I learned from that. But the, but the covenant works. And as long as that's the, the, the binding element, then you can handle anything. I, I don't care how tough or seamy or difficult it is, you can handle it. But the great thing is, that the beauty of the ministry, the power of the ministry, the reach of the ministry flows out of that staff leadership covenant where you're all together. Let me see if there's anything I left out there. I don't think so. Okay, any questions about... Yes, Dominic. No, we have discussions, yes, and, and we, oh, the finished product actually gets printed out and there's spaces down at the bottom of the page for everybody to sign. Everybody signs. Yeah, yeah, it, every, every time we read the covenant, there were changes that we never thought about before or somebody brought some new insight or whatever. The important thing was that, that new people into the engagement um, always brought insights that, that we hadn't even thought about before. Yes. It is, but it's also, it's a casting of the vision, yes, but it's also glue. It becomes the adhesive that makes it possible for us to all be in sync. Um, that we, it wasn't always easy to get there, but to be in sync and then to be moving ahead in the ministry to which Christ had called us. We actually, uh, we just get around a conference table at the church and, uh, and, and work through it. It was either, you know, done at a session meeting or at a, uh, a meeting where we had the elders and the, because most of the staff had to be at the session meetings anyway. So we'd just gather around and uh, work it through. A lot of the elements that were in the original covenant carried over into others, but there were, there were frequently little adjustments that were made that, that actually enhanced it. And the important thing was that the incoming people had buy-in. They knew, I've got a voice here, and, and, I'm, and I'm being listened to, and I'm, I'm going to have a, an engagement here that is like nothing I've had before. Could you expand a bit on the role of 
Yeah. That's why the presbytery has the pastor. <laughs> no, it, the, the loyalty, remember what I said, it's not a blind loyalty. It, it is a loyalty that says what, whatever we have to deal with, we're going to deal with it together. And then once we arrive at a decision. Now, I will tell you that, that m- most decisions we actually made by consensus. If that was not the case and a decision needed to be made, then I would make the decision. Uh, and do it with proper justification and, and analysis for the sake of everybody involved so that we could then be loyal to one another as we moved ahead and whatever that was. But generally, the decisions were fought through, struggled. We had knock-down, drag-out fights. And uh, I would periodically have to go, let me, I'll just use this as an example. One of the members of my staff was John Tolson. Uh, he was with me for 18 years. Um, incredible man, had an amazing gift for ministry to men, Uh, hated committee meetings, hated the structure of the church, hated preaching, hated leading worship. Well, over those 18 years, there would be a number of times when we would be together and, and people in the in the group around the covenant would say, how come Tolson doesn't have to go to this or that? Or Why does he get to do that and I don't get to do that? So we would have to have a little conversation. And one of the things that I, I generally imparted, and this comes under the concept of loyalty, I operated on the principle of value and trade-offs. Every person has significant value. But if you accept that person with that value, they're going to be trade-offs. If you take Howard Eddington, you get a certain value. But there are also certain trade-offs. And in Tolson's case, the value was enormous. The trade-offs were we periodically had to have these little conversations. And I would even go so far sometimes as to force him to uh, stand up and lead worship or to preach. Uh, and, and the, you know, in fact, ultimately, this is funny, ultimately went on to a, uh, the uh, Highland Park Church in Dallas after I'd finished in Orlando. And he, uh, the minister out there after about a year called me up and he said, I got to ask you something. How in the Sam Hill did you deal with John Tolson for 18 years? And I said, ah, <laughs> let me tell you how you do that. Well, he, he then saw the value of this whole covenant concept and the loyalty that is there. Tolson knew that none of us were out to get him. That wasn't the point. We had to accommodate his values and his trade-offs. And if we couldn't accommodate the trade-offs completely, then he had to address that under the concept of loyalty. And, and he usually did. He might have pouted a little bit, but that was okay. Yeah. 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 Yep. It's a trade-off. Yes. Yes. And as long as the glue is there, the adhesive, then the trade-offs are understandable. Everybody knows the trade-offs. It, it doesn't come out of the blue. 
everybody who, who is engaged has trade-offs, and you know what they are, and you learn how, in your loyalty to one another, to accommodate those. I don't know that you have any. Now, Meredith, <laughs> Meredith, we could talk to Meredith about this, and we might find one or two. <laughs> yes. All right, number one, our ultimate loyalty is unswerving, unconditional, our loyalty to Christ. You you don't become a part of the staff or leadership of the church unless your ultimate loyalty is to Jesus Christ without question. Remember what I said in picking staff, Christian commitment is the first element. The other aspect of loyalty is how do you live together and work together in a way that builds the kingdom as well as building individual lives. And so loyalty has a corrective element to it. It has a disciplining aspect to it. And it also has an encouraging aspect to it. So that there, you, you couldn't, um, you, you, you know, nobody could come to me and say, I, I got a problem with such and such a person on the staff. Because I would say, okay. Matthew, we're going, Matthew tells us, you got a problem with a brother? You go and deal with that. So we would, the two of us would go deal with that, with that person. That's what loyalty means on the encouraging side. So that you couldn't, you couldn't have things fragment. You couldn't have people fighting with each other. You couldn't have kingdoms built that then stifled the work of the church and the building of the ultimate kingdom. I don't know if I'm answering you adequately, but that's what I'm trying to say. I... That's the purpose of renewing the covenant. You bring to it different insights, different people, different circumstances. At, at one point, you know, when the church wasn't so large, there were, it was easier to do certain things. As the church got larger, you had to adjust and do things in other ways. But the basic elements were still there. And, and there was still this unbelievable commitment, one to Christ, and then a commitment to each other that was going to have all sorts of pushes and pulls and stresses and strains. But uh, by holding together, you kept... You remember, what, remember about the parable? What did Jesus say? The evil is the devil. And the devil is going to be sowing weeds in your field. And so you've got to be aware that there's the only way to counteract that is to understand that there's some basic elements that we're going to hold to that maintain the integrity of the ministry as a whole. I, I could pursue that more if you wish, but okay, anything else? We're doing okay, aren't we? Um, 
Okay. Um, let me do one more little segment here, and then, then if you feel like you need to take a break, we could do that. Or if you want to just keep rolling, I can keep rolling. And if you need to go get something to eat or go to the bathroom, you can just get up and leave and then come back. Um, the next intention, T.B. Matson said, the Christians who turn the world upside down for God are women and men who have a vision in their hearts and a Bible in their hands. No matter what we did in Orlando, the vision and the Bible were always there. We never, never did anything that did not flow out of the truths of the scriptures and was somehow engaged in communicating the truths of the scriptures. Everything we did had that as part of it. Um, one, at one point, I was looking, we, we, had the, we had the heart of the city, and that was a nice little motto. At one point, we were trying to figure out, okay, we've got this huge vision for where we want to go, it was going to involve, we, we ultimately did buy the gravel parking lot and we bought the funeral home so that now that church sits on a, a whole city block, the largest single-owned block of property in downtown Orlando. It took millions of dollars and a lot of years, but we got there. But then we began to talk about how do we get the vision out there? And I was looking for something that we could use as a kind of a catchphrase. Trisha and I were driving down the highway in East Texas one day, and we, I was driving, and she suddenly said, I saw something on that billboard back there that you might be able to use. It said, we're here for life. I thought, man, that sounds neat. I said, let me go back around and see that. We, tur <laughs> we turned the car around. Got off at the next exit, came back. The billboard was not there. Now, when something like that happens, I'm going to tell you, I take that to be the word of God spoken through a human instrument. So we're here for life became the galvanizing rallying point for us. We're here for life. We are not going to move out of downtown. No matter what you do in your life, if you're, if you're part of First Presbyterian Orlando, you're going to be right here. We aren't going to engage in all these discussions about do we leave, do we stay, no matter what happens. We're here. No matter what it costs, we're here. We're also here for life abundant. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. So everything we did was designed to not only exalt Christ, but to buoy both the spirit and the condition of the vast swath of humanity that passed through our block in one way or another. So we're here for life, yes, but also the life of Christ. It also, it had a desired effect. Number one, people knew that they could count on the presence of First Presbyterian Orlando. It's still right there, dead center 
in Orlando, still doing amazing things. They also knew that no matter what we engaged in, it wasn't going to be a fly-by-night operation. We, we were going to be serious about it. And it was going to have meat, the meat of the gospel, but also the meat of other things as well. And it would be sunk deep in the life of the city and the community around us. So the whole concept of we're here for life had the effect of moving the life of the church out, and I'll come to this a little later, we also then had the challenge of bringing people in. Getting into downtown Orlando was not easy. People coming to this church, it isn't easy. I mean, there's no parking. There are a lot of other obstacles to coming here. And so we had to become enormously creative. And I will deal with that in the, in the kind of program aspects of the church in, in just a minute. But the whole purpose became sending the message of Christ out and bringing people in. 